You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, two months on from Hamas's attack on Israel, we'll look at what happens next for both peoples and the two-state solution. Italy exits China's Belt and Road Initiative. Will others follow suit? Plus, electronic mail takes on a whole new meaning in New Zealand. Just having an aircraft that has a high degree of reliability in terms of availability because it's simpler and it's all electric, is important for folks that are trying to get the mail delivered on time. And it's Thursday, which means, of course, Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, joins us for the Global Countdown. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McIverney. It is exactly two months since Hamas broke through the Gaza border to attack Israel, killing over 1,200 people and taking 240 hostages, some of whom have been released during last week's truce. In the weeks since the attack, more than 16,000 people have died in Israel's retaliatory campaign, including about 7,000 children, according to the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry. Sanam Vakil is the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Sanam, thank you for joining us. Firstly, just to step back and put this period in perspective, in the 75 years since Israel was founded, just how radical and pivotal have the past two months been in its history? Thank you for having me. Um, Yes, this two months um, is a very grim milestone. And uh, this war that was... um, very gruesomely launched um, in response to the horrible October 7th massacre of um, Israelis is a huge milestone for Israel. Um, 75 years on um, since its independence, um, its security has been uh, shaken uh, profoundly and deeply to the core. Um, Israelis were uh, believing that uh, the security had been managed uh, by their leaders and particularly by Prime Minister Netanyahu. And that all um, really fractured on October 7th. Uh, and this leaves um, Israel's leadership, uh, but also uh, its people above all, um, having to confront and face a future that looks very insecure, um, also with leadership uh, that isn't thinking beyond the war um, and how a political settlement could address Israel's security over a longer period of time. Speaking of leadership, Bibi Netanyahu has been in trouble politically for some time, domestically due to ongoing legal proceedings. He has this coalition with the far right uh, politics uh, in Israel. He has always, though, relied on being Mr. Security, but that has now been destroyed by this. I mean, it seems like he doesn't have much longer left in office, uh, but, you know, his legacy is now completely tarnished, isn't it? Well, it seems so in this moment. Obviously, um, if you look at uh, the, the the life of a, a leader, uh, there are inflection points and legacies and, and perceptions change over time. And certainly uh, this event 
uh, this war will uh, deeply um, impact Netanyahu's legacy. But Netanyahu is a survivor. And while um, many people would like to see uh, the end of his um, premiership. Um, I think that we have to uh, wait and see, um, you know, Israeli society is traumatized um, since October 7th, and they have to emerge from the fog of war and, and start thinking about uh, the future and what kind of leadership can step in um, and, and provide perhaps something new. And, and Netanyahu might try and, as he always has, uh, sell himself as uh, still a solution. And in terms of looking at the future, the solution uh, has always been, and, and you know, allies of Israel say that there has to be a two-state solution. But the Israeli people are traumatized uh, by this. Uh, its progress has been stalled by Bibi Netanyahu for many years. Do you think there's an appetite for it now? Is it even still viable? Well, I think the two-state solution is um, sort of an easy, uh, easy solution that people are, are dusting off um, because uh, no real work has been done on. Uh, and here we have to talk about uh, Palestinians because we haven't mentioned them and we haven't mentioned their trauma and, and the stagnation um, for ordinary Palestinians that have uh, not just been under uh, bombardment in Gaza, but also um, living in, in limbo and under immense amounts of strain and pressure in the West Bank, where violence um, is picking up um, and has been um, directed towards them over the last two months as well. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily a guarantee that a two-state solution can be um, uh, imposed. It, obviously, uh, much work has to be done. And one of the biggest challenges to that, beyond um, finding leaders that can deliver uh, a two-state solution, um, is a, a greater understanding of what, A, Palestinians want and, and what kind of um, statehood um, and what kind of solution they seek. They also haven't had elections for um, 18 years, and, and that in itself is a problem. But secondly, um, Israel, with its right-wing leadership, have been violating international law and uh, an estimated 700,000 Israeli settlers now live on Palestinian land in the West Bank. Um, and the issue of uh, settlements uh, must be resolved um, in order to uh, think about a two-state solution where Palestinians have statehood, sovereignty, um, rights uh, uh, that are in adherence with international law. Mm. Uh, and with that sort of uh, allowance of that level of settler activity and particularly the violence in recent weeks of, on top of, you know, the feeling that Israel uh, is being too indeterminate in its strikes in Gaza, uh, how damaged and strained are Israel's diplomatic ties around the world and what kind of repercussions could we see for them? Well, I think um, Israelis haven't recognized um that the trauma of of this war is spilling over um obviously first impacting palestinians uh in in the west bank and above all in gaza with over 16,000 people died in such a short time frame this is really unprecedented um, and must be absorbed um the international community particularly western um, governments that provided um, Israel with immediate support, moral, political and military are even drawing back 
um, and, and, and curtailing that sort of long leash granted to Israel because the implications of this war are, um, are, are numerous. First of all, of course, um, there's great uh, humanitarian catastrophe in, in Gaza. It's being pulverized to the ground with an objective of um, exterminating Hamas that isn't necessarily achievable. Um, secondly, of course, um, how you rebuild and bring back governance uh, to, to, to this um, people uh, is going to be extremely difficult in the wake of this war. Beyond that, of course, um, there's uh, domestic uh, challenges across the Middle East where populations have been um, very angered, uh, and if not radicalized, um, by mm. what they see as double standards, where um, Israel's condemnation and use of violence hasn't been um, held to the same standard um, as uh, Russia's activities in Ukraine. And that is, of course, playing out um, and will continue to play out in a very uncomfortable way uh, at, at multilateral institutions like the United Nations. But, you know, the impact of this has not really uh, been felt or digested, I think, mm. in many Western capitals. Sanam, thank you. That was Sanam Vakil. Now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has warned that there is a severe risk of collapse of the humanitarian system in Gaza. In a rare move, Guterres invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter, urging the Security Council to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Robert Jenrick has resigned as the UK's Immigration Secretary in protest against a new asylum agreement with Rwanda. Home Secretary James Cleverley travelled to the East African country this week to renegotiate the deal after the UK's top court ruled a previous version was illegal. Jenrick said the new legislation did not go far enough. And Russia will hold a presidential election on the 17th of March next year, after lawmakers in the country's upper house of parliament voted unanimously to approve the date. President Vladimir Putin is widely expected to run for and win a fifth term in office. Residents of four regions of Ukraine annexed by Russia in 2022 will be included in the vote for the first time. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Sophie. In October, China held a conference attended by world leaders, including Vladimir Putin, to celebrate 10 years of its Belt and Road Initiative, an ambitious but controversial undertaking to boost connectivity and trade across the world with Chinese money and know-how in infrastructure development. The BRI has spent hundreds of billions of dollars to power the construction of bridges, ports, highways, power plants and telecoms projects across Asia, Latin America, Africa and parts of Europe. But the projects have faced accusations of being debt trap diplomacy. And now Italy has withdrawn from the initiative. Tricia Craig is a senior lecturer in sociology and political sciences at Yale NUS in Singapore, specialising in China's Belt and Road Initiative. Tricia, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how big a blow will this departure be for China? Hi, Vincent. Great to be here. Uh, really, I think it will not be that large. One of the reasons Italy is leaving is because the expected gains that it was hoping for did not materialize. Italy exports maybe $18 billion worth of goods to China. The BRI is China's trillion dollar gamble. And I think many countries across, as you mentioned, Asia, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, they will all continue to welcome these really big scale infrastructure projects that the BRI is famous for, even as they become you know, more conscious of the debt that they're taking on. 
And Italy was the only G7 nation to join the BRI. Is there added significance, though, in it leaving now and this being very much something that, uh, you know, a major global economy doesn't want to be involved in? Sure. I mean, they joined in 2019 with the hope of attracting investment, increasing Italy's market access to China. That's what everybody wants. Um, And it did put it at odds with some of its allies who really felt that Beijing was kind of using Italy as a wedge to kind of split the EU from from the US. And today, the situation is quite different. Um, The hope for gains did not materialize. Maloney, uh, Italy's prime minister, she had campaigned on getting out of the BRI. Uh, And so I think one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, we have a greater convergence across Europe today around a more common position with respect to China. And what will the repercussions be for the Rome-Beijing relationship? Will Xi Jinping uh, be pretty wounded by this? Will he take any kind of retaliation? You know, this was slightly embarrassing um, to announce it just as the um, EU-China summit was starting. Um, But I think, you know, this did not come out of the blue. She telegraphed that this was going to happen, and she has been very careful to say Italy expects to maintain good relationships with China. She's pointed out that other G7 countries who are not in BRI have better relations with China than Italy does. So I think she has, um, you know, diplomatically smoothed that relationship. So I don't think that there will be much retaliation. And the EU's plan is to de-risk from China. What are your expectations, given that, for this EU-China summit, uh, which is beginning in Beijing today? So that is one of the that is one of the issues on the table. The Europeans and the Chinese are relatively far apart. I think no one expects a ton in terms of measurable outcomes from this. Um, the expectations are low, just like the recent Biden G summit, there won't be a joint statement issued at the end of it, but it will allow both sides to lay out some of the issues that are um, sort of thorns in the EU-China relationship. The EU is worried about the massive European trade deficit with China. Uh, It looks at China as placing restrictions on European companies. It objects to the state support for Chinese companies. And China is quite incensed at the EU's de-risking strategy. Um, That is something that um, has come up. And in part, it's related to the big issue of Ukraine. Um, The dependence, Europe's dependence on Russia, um, which has worked out very badly during the during the war it has that has further solidified Europe's skeptical views towards China and China on the other hand this is the de-risking issue is probably their biggest concern coming to the table they want to slow Europe's role on de-risking because that will cause further slowdowns to the Chinese economy And before the summit, Beijing announced it would temporarily offer visa-free entry to citizens from five European countries, France, Germany, Spain, Italy and the Netherlands. Why is Beijing doing that? Is it trying to stabilise relationships? I mean, they, you know, there's not really a huge appetite, it seems at the moment, for tourists from the EU to actually go to China after the pandemic years. Um, That's 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 absolutely right. I think for the next so for the next year, um, China's offering citizens of the countries you mentioned visa-free travel. So partly it is to kickstart the tourism economy, which is important for China, and that had been decimated during COVID. But it is also, I think, um, more sort of 
politically motivated, and it's an attempt to counter the deteriorating image abroad of China, particularly in the West, where distrust of China is running very high, and in Europe, where we're seeing more of a consolidated position. Tricia Craig in Singapore, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Air New Zealand has purchased its first electronic plane, which will initially be used to deliver mail in partnership with the country's postal service. Known as the Alia, the aircraft is part of plans by New Zealand's flag carrier to lower carbon emissions from domestic flights. The firm plans to offer passengers flights in battery-powered planes by 2030. The Alia was designed by US-based aerospace company Beta Technologies. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to its CEO, Kyle Clark, who was on the road with Air New Zealand's mapping Alia's mail delivery route. The aircraft itself is um, something that was specifically designed for very low-cost and sustainable cargo and logistics transport. So, you know, it it is specifically designed for the use case that Air New Zealand is launching with it, but it also is a problem that that needs solving with customers like UPS and others. So I wouldn't say it's specifically designed for Air New Zealand, but it is specifically designed for the mission they're solving for. And what are some of the specific features that make it suitable to be a plane that delivers mail? First of all, it's a cost of operation. It has to be a significantly reduced cost of operation, which you kind of get when you go electric, but you have to design a very efficient, smooth airframe. I mean, it's significantly less expensive to run than normal aircraft. You know, it's it's at least half, if not better. And you get that when you go to a zero emissions aircraft anyway, because the majority of the cost of flying these small aircraft is fuel cost. So a sustainable aircraft is a quiet aircraft is a lower cost aircraft. The second things are you have to have a flat floor, carry a lot of cargo. Mail is getting lower and lower density. Um, you know, there's a lot of air shipped for e-commerce and other things. So that means you have to have a large volume. So there's a very large volume in the cargo hold, a flat floor, and a very large door that's about a meter and a half wide that allows you to put three large shipping pallets in the back of the plane. And the range of the aircraft must be a factor as well. A lot of people refer to it when they have electric cars as range anxiety. So how long will these routes be initially? Will it be a, a case of flying them across New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's range anxiety in, in, in all forms of transportation. Aircraft is very, they're very planned routes. They're, it's not like you get in and are surprised by the energy and the battery or the fuel tank. So there's not so-called anxiety plus It's required that we carry 45 minutes plus of reserves flying IFR, which is instrument flight rules. And that's another important feature I should have mentioned before. In order for the aircraft to do its job reliably, it has to fly in all weather. So that's an important part of a cargo aircraft. But to answer your question about range anxiety and the actual range of the the aircraft, the ones we're flying now, the furthest we've flown them is about 336 nautical miles. So, so just under 400 statute miles. And when you load it up with cargo and carry reserves and all that kind of stuff, a typical route will be under 200 miles. Are you able to say whether the speed will be equivalent to what people expect now? You know, can people expect their parcels to arrive just as quickly as they normally would? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. The aircraft speed is about the same as a typical cargo aircraft, like a Cessna Caravan, a Cessna 208. So the actual flight speed is is the same. However, with electric aircraft, there's there's not a spool up time, warm up times, fuel checks, and all that type of stuff. So the practical cadence of electric aircraft is actually better than existing fuel powered aircraft. And we see that in our trial flying right now, where the aircraft is ready to go near instantaneously um, with all the all the self-awareness or built-in test functions that we have for safety as opposed to manual checks. So it's, you know, it's at it's at worst equivalent to, um, but more realistically, as these um, these aircraft get integrated into the system, it'll be more efficient means of transport. The other thing that's interesting about electric is the maintenance requirements are significantly lower than their kind of gas-powered brethren because they're not producing hot corrosive gases all the time and wearing out the motors, the engines, or otherwise. So just having an aircraft that has a high degree of reliability in terms of availability, because it's simpler and it's all electric, is important for folks that are trying to get the mail delivered on time. Obviously, New Zealand is a big place. How much of New Zealand's mail will be delivered by plane initially? Can you say that? And is there a plan to extend this? I do not know the answer to that question. Um, I should know the answer to that question, but I can answer the second question. Absolutely, there's opportunities to extend this. In fact, as the as the provider of the aircraft, we're going to overinvest in this to make sure it's successful for New Zealand. And that that the next step is to expand the routes and and create sustainable avi a sustainable aviation baseline that can be built from with these aircraft into higher performing aircraft in the future. And just finally, it's mail now, but are passengers next for electric aircrafts? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the aircraft is designed to start with cargo logistics, medical, critical cargo, but it is also designed for carrying passengers. It's a six-person airplane or a three-pallet plus pilot airplane, and it's the right place to start with cargo and logistics, and very shortly thereafter, we'll be carrying passengers. Beta Technologies' Carl Clark there speaking to Lillian Fawcett about a new kind of e-mail. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally today, it's time for another instalment of Fernando Augusto Pacheco's Global Countdown, in which our senior correspondent and music curator reviews the charts from one country of the world. But this week, it's a special wintry edition, recorded earlier with head of Monocle Radio, Tom Edwards. Well, it is Thursday, which means it's global countdown time. And Fernando Augusto Pacheco, we are doing something a little bit different. It's not just that we're alighting in a particular market. As you sometimes do, you've thrown a curveball into the mix. What have you got up your sleeve? Well, this time I have a special winter playlist and it's official because if you buy the December-January issue of Monaco, where we have our soft power survey, we also have a hundred tracks handpicked by me, Tong. Uh, and they're divided in five different vibes. And by the way, I think you should buy, first of all, the magazine. And if you want to listen to it as well, there is a Spotify uh, page for Monaco Radio with all the tracks. But I think I decided to do a special global will come down perhaps to review a little bit more about the tracks right on so there's five different vibes here as i said i think the first one you might say fernando you're wrong because i actually 
don't run at all, uh, because the vibe is called for a crisp morning run. Uh, but you know, if you, it's like something slightly energetic, you know, to uh, for you, so you can run or you can just go and pick up your groceries. Probably that's more. That's more. I was going to say, I, I think I might go for a crisp morning run. You, uh, we said earlier, you might run to get some crisps. Exactly. That's exactly. maybe more how a winter morning goes. Um, so this will be interesting. It needs to warm the cockles, but it's got to get you to pick up the pace. A little. What have you got, Faye? Well, we have from France, of course. They do amazing pop. It's very airy, the song, if I may say. It's very kind of spatial and very beautiful. It's Nina Lily J with Decla. Vibes, it's good vibe. It's light as a feather, I think. This and song. there's a good cadence there. I don't yeah. think you've ever seen me running. I'm guessing no. <laughs> That's about the cadence. It's not some kind of stairmaster pace. Nice and gentle. It's lovely. That's and you know, good. researching about Nina Lily J because I didn't know much about her, but I just realized she's one of the vocals of one of my favorite French bands, La Femme, which is they describe themselves as electropunk. You know, they're quite interesting mix of genres as well. So I think she's going for uh, her solo projects time to time as well. Good vibes. What was she saying there? Dance, dance, I heard. Dance, dance, or I run, can run. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that'll warm the cockles on a chilly winter's morning. Um, Faye, surprisingly, I rather like that. Amazing. What's I, happening? This is very irregular. I have a feeling I like the second one oh, as well. Okay. So what's this genre then? This one is for when the fire is roaring, you know. So it's a little bit later in the evening. It's very, very cold. Uh, and this is, funnily enough, it's a song from Brazil, which is not a very cold country. But it's a beautiful track. It's from 1977. And this band, it's very hard to pronounce. I think even you, if you're a great Portuguese, you will struggle. Well, I struggle with this one. It's okay. Os Cinco Us. Which is uh, and tinkoa? I didn't know that. What was that? Is a type of bird from Brazil. It's like a cuckoo, cuckoo, a cuckoo, a cuckoo. A cuckoo. Sorry, okay, yeah. I had problems uh, saying cuckoo. Yeah, and and that's why they named uh, the band after that. And they were kind of popular at the time. They were a bit forgotten, but now there's a younger generation like looking back, even internationally. Uh, so they are from Bahia. So they are very important kind of Afro-Brazilian group, and, and you know, and they talk about the the goddesses and gods of of the Afro-Brazilian religions. It's all very beautiful, and I think perfect for the fire. Let's have a listen. Os cinco as with Cordeiro de Nanã. Sou de Nanã, eu ai, eu ai, eu ai. Good vibes gentle, again, Fernando. Very gentle. And Nana, again, it's a very, there's this accent that, that we have sometimes at the end of the words, very difficult. It's like a grammar figure in Candomblé, which is an Afro-Brazilian religion. Uh, so it's quite, it's, they're very cool, actually. Oh, so like Nana. Nana, exactly. Well, yeah. maybe, yeah. I don't know. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. Like the granny. I like that vibe. Oh, wow. And uh, so how does the cuckoo fit into this? So Tinkoa is a type of cuckoo who lives, well, I mean, who are, they're from Brazil, basically. Okay. Tinkoa. Yeah. 
Fernando. <laughs> Two from two. What is happening on this week's Global Countdown? This is very irregular. It makes me feel like the world is tilting on its axis. I'm presuming you're going to repulse my ears with something you've got on the list. What's next? It makes me happy because these ones I'm really picking. The other ones I don't pick. I mean, I, I'm not responsible for the number one song, the Solomon Islands, well, for Well, not example. directly. Not directly. Uh, this is for a wintry dinner party. So, again, it needs oh, to be okay. gentle. I'm getting a bit nervous, yeah. I may be here. It needs to be gentle, but, you know, some little synths here and there. And okay. this time we're moving to the 80s. Uh, That's front- usually promising. Very promising. I think you like it because it's very neon-like, uh, perhaps like Manhunter vibes. I can see this. <laughs> yes, I can, well, Manhunter, the Michael Mann film from the 80s, yes. I have to clarify here. This is Tomoko Aran, this song from 1983 with Midnight Pretenders. I love it. I'm not sure. <laughs> I was thinking more synthy. Okay. A bit more electro poppy. That was tumbling into a kind of strange dinner jazz vortex that I'm not so maybe, overly happy with. Are you telling people we'll be sleeping in my dinner party? <laughs> Possibly. There was a sleepy quality, but I, I guess that's fairly inoffensive. You don't want anything that's upstaging the food or the company, right? So that's Absolutely kind of, it's, it's background music. And Tomoko Arana was curious. I mean, apparently she only had releases during the 80s, but she's still alive. She's 65 years old. I found out that she still blogs. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if it's her, but I mean, she's commenting about, oh, I saw my vinyl in, in Tower Records in Tokyo. I love that there's a revival of city pop, which is her genre in the 80s. And then she was recommending places to eat a good ramen uh, in Japan. But I'm not sure if it's a real Tomoko Aran. I think it could well be. But Sounds like some of the recommendations I was receiving from our creative director, Richard Spence Powell, when he just returned from Tokyo. Maybe he's moonlighting. Exactly. Yes, Tomoko Aran. Let's, let's investigate this more fully, uh, Fernando. I'd say two and a half hits. That was, a, that was a bit more of a coin toss, that one. What's your fourth subgenre? Well, we're embracing chaos here. I mean, that's what the next song is about. But the, the genre is for a late night boogie. So, of course, we have to be a little bit more up-tempo. I think you have to open your mind home as well a little bit. I do find that very difficult. For she's very new. She's from Australia, but she lives in Paris. And she's known as the techno-pop princess. I love her. I think she, I like how she makes genres. And she, she describes her new album and this song as, it's a bit Eurodance, a bit trashy, very hyper-feminine. Okay, I, I don't know. that could be written on Fernando Augusto Pacheco's tombstone. Exactly. Let's have a listen. San Quilly with Watch Me Now, Queen of the Night. If you want to go with me, not that easy. I'm a love, don't come for free. Love, don't come for free. Love, don't come for free. Excellent. That is good, hearty disco vibes. Do you know what? Inexplicably, Fernando, I'm kind of into that. We might play on our Christmas party this evening. Oh, that'll be good. Which is this evening, actually. It's crazy. Get yourself ready. God. I thought you were dressed somewhat conservatively. Oh, you've got a big wardrobe change coming up Of later. course, of course. After 6pm, I'm a different person. Where are we person. going? Is there some sort of velvet or velour situation? Can't tell you. Can't no, tell not you. even at oh, Can't okay. tell you. <laughs> so, um, that was pretty good, Fernando. I think you might like that in the end. If you like this one, you might like the final Should one. Should our listeners check out the video for that one? I think so as well. She's dressed as kind of a, as an erotic cowgirl, you know, and uh, that's how we say, right? Cowboy, <laughs> cowgirl? Have you said it? I, mean, I don't know. We'll have to be, let our listeners be <laughs> the judges of that one.
look at look at look at the face of staff like behind the scenes. Let's... She looks like she's suffering in there. <laughs> yes. Maybe she was watching the video. There's a lot going on. In yes, um, Fernando, how on earth? Are we going to wrap up this special edition of the Global Countdown? Well, tunes that made our year. So I picked as well, you can see if you buy the magazine, 20 songs that I think really made 2023. And I chose one uh, tone that perhaps we might not even play on Monaco Radio or that perhaps is not from a very kind of famous poppy artist. It's also very electronic. It's by Rodriguez Jr. He's a French producer, but he's singing here with Lisette Alea, who was born in Cuba. And I didn't know that. She was the lead singer of Nouvelle Vague as well. Uh, So, you know, great band. It's very celestial. There are synths on this one. I think it's a beautiful track released this year. Definitely on my top 20 of the year. So let's have a listen to Rodriguez Jr. with Lisette Alea and RJLA with Amplify. I would say it's goosebumps inducing, but, you know. Freya, that is a pretty good selection. And what's interesting, of course, and I don't want to give the game away for people who are about to read the December-January issue, but if you look at the big soft power players and the top of the tree, it's quite interesting how French everything's sounding on your list. We've described all around the world different arcs. There's definitely some, I don't know, soft power, francophone, French Disco, electro vibe. Absolutely. Look at Sam Quilly. She's from Australia, but she lives in Paris. So even people from other countries, they feel motivated. And that's the sign of a country that needs to win um, a soft power survey, in my opinion. It's doing very well. And, Faye, that was a pretty good list. Nothing. I, I, had to, I didn't have to even come close to removing my headphones <laughs> in sheer disgust at any point. Uh, a nice mix for this week. Can we? Can you whet our appetites? What else we've got to come in the next couple of weeks? Well, or do there, we need to wait and see? We have to wait and see, but there might be more a little bit from the playlist. Of course, we oh. might do the best uh, tracks of the year. The Christmas one, I'm still thinking, Tom, because funnily enough, I like Christmas songs, but not that much. Wow. A controversial uh, wrap-up to this week's Global Countdown. Fernando, always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Amazing. Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Tom Edwards there. And that's all from this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>